Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. I knew completely in my heart that it was the right thing to do, and I didn't even think twice about it. People aren't really looking just to hold on to all of that money until the point that they die. They want to see the impact of that. We bought it with a lot of help from both of our parents. With an ageing population, it's taking longer and longer for people to receive inheritance, which is, of course, a good thing in that people are living longer, but it has had a huge impact on generational wealth. According to a new survey by insurance provider Aviva, people born in the 1960s will typically receive inheritance when they're 58. But for people born in the 80s, that climbs to 64. But of course, the money you inherit in your 60s might be far more useful when you're a lot younger. And a lot of parents are realising that. Aviva survey found that more than half of people aged over 55 want to see the benefit of giving significant financial help to their family whilst they're still alive, rather than waiting to leave an inheritance. This is what's being called a living legacy. So today we'll be taking a look at the different ways you can gift money to your children or receive money from your parents and the rules and implications you should be aware of. And for this, we're joined by a brilliant lineup of guests, which lead money writer Stephen Maunder and Jenny Ross, editor of which money it's so good to have you both on the show thank you so good to be back morning Lucia yep great to be here good morning so let's start off then by talking about living legacies why is it that people are wanting to give money now instead of later I think a lot of it comes down to the very well-documented challenges facing younger generations in terms of just getting a decent financial foothold in life. So thinking about my parents' generation, they didn't pay tuition fees and properties were a hell of a lot more affordable relative to their income. I think my parents bought their first home when they were in their mid-20s and the average age of first-time buyers now has got to be, I think it's early 30s, right, Steve? I don't know if there's a more precise figure than that, but it's definitely gone up. So I think there's very much a sense of you've got it tougher than we did. So it only feels right that we give you a helping hand if we can. I think that's played a really big part. And then, of course, you know, that there's potentially more of a pragmatic approach to do with inheritance tax planning. House prices have been soaring over the past few years, which means that more people could end up with estates worth more than the inheritance tax threshold. Although I've, I've got to say there that a lot more people worry about inheritance tax than actually end up having to pay it. And we'll, we'll come on to that later. But anyway, the point stands that giving money away now in your lifetime reduces the size of your estate, which means that potentially you're going to be avoiding any inheritance tax liability for your family, which is an act of kindness as well, right? Absolutely. I suppose there's also that kind of emotive reason that you might just want to see your money doing good now rather than leaving it. 
Of course, it's it's one thing to know that your family is going to benefit from money after you've gone, but surely it's that much sweeter to be able to see them appreciate it and to do things they might otherwise have been able to do, like getting onto the property ladder a lot earlier. Well, let's dive a little deeper then into the Aviva findings. Here's Matt McGill, Managing Director of Aviva Equity Release. 2021 census statistics, were, which were released in June, show the greatest number of people ever in the UK are now over the 65-year age bracket. And people of that age now account for 18.6% of the UK population compared to 16.4 a decade ago. In addition, for the first time, there are more than half a million people aged 90 and above, in contrast to 100 years ago, when only 15,000 had reached that age, which means overall that people are receiving inheritances at a later age than in previous generations. We're definitely seeing the longevity have a quite a big impact now in, in that desire to pass money down the generations. There's a, a huge feel-good factor that rides across the top of that. We see that coming through in some of the insight that we've gained because people aren't really looking just to hold on to all of that money until the point that they die. They want to see the impact of that come through and see the appreciation of that as, as that goes through. Now, we've said before that one of the biggest things younger people need help with is buying a home. And for many, it's become completely unaffordable without parental help. Steve, why is that? Well, it's no secret that house prices have been absolutely flying over the last kind of 12 months. I, th I think the most recent land registry data shows that in the 12 months to this May, prices have risen by about £30,000 on average. Ultimately, even if first-time buyers were having significant wage growth, kind of progressing into jobs with better salaries, it's still very difficult to keep pace with that kind of increase. We're essentially looking at houses earning more in a year than the average person does. And that's before any kind of other outgoings. So demand has outstripped supply for such a long time in the housing market. And this has resulted in, we've really seen in the last 12 months, lots of properties going for above their asking price. Whereas once you might have set an asking price and then got knocked down a little bit on that, you're now seeing people bidding over the asking price to beat other people's properties. And what that means is it's very hard for first-time buyers to compete because they don't have the flexibility of budget that other buyers do. So if there's a new build home for £200,000 and you're a first-time buyer trying to buy it, but there's a property investor who wants to buy a few units and has the cash to just do it there and then, unfortunately, they might get the ability to do it that you won't because you might say, well, I've got a very strict budget and I can't go above that, whereas they might be able to be more flexible. What we are seeing now is house price growth is beginning to slow down. But unfortunately, like it's barely going to make a dent because prices are still growing. They may stagnate over the remainder of the year, but with 30% increase in 12 months, that's a big mountain to climb for first-time buyers. We've been speaking to our listeners, Shruti Trivedi and her husband, Vinay, who managed to buy their first flat in Buckinghamshire with help from their parents. Here's their story. We bought it with a lot of help from both of our parents. We definitely couldn't have done it without, even if we'd managed to save what we needed, it would have taken a while. And then obviously by then the property market would have most likely have changed. What happened was they had offered to kind of pay for parts of our wedding and we decided that rather than the money being spent on that, it would be better if they could contribute towards our house deposit because that was a long-term aim. And I think from both of our perspectives, we couldn't pay rent and also save enough to be able to generate a deposit. 
unless, like Shruti said, we've done it for five or six years. And even then, it would be a lot of scrimping and saving, by which point the property market would have moved up. And so you're always chasing that deposit amount. I think it's almost become the norm now, whereas maybe it might have been 15, 20 years ago that it was kind of seen as you should you know, get your own property based upon your own wealth. I've certainly found that a lot of my friends have managed to get onto the property ladder, at least the first step, with help from parents. And I think it's become more the norm to get help from somebody. And then once you're on the property ladder, you can either pay your parents back and then you move on house to house uh, on your own. But certainly that first step, that first moment of getting on the property ladder, I could probably say only a handful of my friends or people I know have been able to do it on their own. Otherwise, it's pretty much, yeah, most people I've known are either renting or, or renting have had help or, from or, their parents. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear Shruti and Vinay talk about their decision between marriage and a mortgage. It's a predicament I'm sure many of our listeners will have been faced with. I know I've had lots of conversations with friends and family in the same boat. And, and as we spoke about on the podcast last week, weddings can be extremely expensive with the average spending around 17k. So do go back and have a listen to that episode uh, for advice on, on how to save as a couple as well as wedding guests if you haven't already. So Steve then, in terms of marriage versus mortgage, how does this compare to the amount you need for a deposit? And how does it work giving money to go towards someone else's deposit? Well, I think that as someone who's currently planning a wedding myself, I think the one benefit you'd probably say about housing deposits is they are a little bit more fixed than the budgets for weddings with lots of different charges appearing from everywhere. If you are buying a property, you'll usually need about a minimum of 5% of the property's purchase price. That's what we call a 95% mortgage. So if the home is £200,000, you theoretically need at least £10,000 as a down payment. There are some ways you can reduce that. So there are schemes like shared ownership, where you own the percentage of the property and pay rent on the rest. And with that, you'll obviously only need a deposit for the percentage you're buying. That can be a way of getting onto the ladder with a much smaller down payment. But there are big trade-offs for that. You know, you won't own the whole property yourself. So when it comes to gifting... Mortgage lenders will basically want to know, A, what the source of the money is, and B, that you're not going to have to repay that. If they think you are going to have to repay it, they will need to factor that into their calculations as if it's a credit commitment, so like a loan or credit card repayment. So if you're a parent and you want to give £10,000 to your child, you'll usually need to put in writing that that money has come from you, from your own personal savings, and your child won't need to pay that back. Usually that's fine. There have been a few instances over the last few years where some lenders have said, we're not going to accept gifted deposits. We want to see that the applicant has saved the money themselves. But broadly speaking, lenders don't discriminate too much as long as they think that you're not going to have to repay it. And what about if you want to have some control over what your children buy? Can you get a mortgage with them? Theoretically, you can. Yeah, it's it's quite complicated, though. There, there are a few options which I can run through briefly. Um So you can get a joint mortgage with your child, which means you're both named on the property's deeds and the mortgage agreement. Now, the issue with this, of course, is that you'll be jointly responsible for the mortgage. So even if your child's paying the payments every month, if they default, you'll be jointly liable for that. And the real issue with this kind of idea is that assuming that you own or have a mortgage on the property you live in yourself, this will be considered a second home for stamp duty purchases. So you'll have to pay stamp duty at the higher rate for buy-to-let investors, 
which can add thousands and thousands of pounds to the bill. There is a way around this. There's a specific type of mortgage called a joint borrower sole proprietor mortgage or JBSP. Slips off the tongue, that one. They're quite niche and they sound quite technical. But um, basically what they mean is that you can be named on the mortgage agreement as a parent, but you won't be named on the property's deeds. So you'll jointly have the mortgage, but only your child will own the property. And this means you won't need to pay stamp duty at the additional rate. So these deals are quite niche and the eligibility rules can be quite strict, but it's worth having a look at. If we were to look at more common ways of helping your child buy a property, guarantor mortgages have been around for a number of years now, and they basically involve you either using your savings or your own property as collateral to help your child get accepted for a mortgage. So if you're using your savings, the bank will usually say you need to deposit X percent, X thousands of pounds in this specific account for X number of years. And then once your child has repaid the mortgage for a certain number of years and proved they're reliable and they're making their payments, your savings will then be released. Obviously, both of these options involve taking on risk yourself because either your money or your property will be at risk if your child defaults. I think the key advice would be with all of these things is it's really best to take professional advice from a mortgage broker because guarantor mortgages, there are quite a few of them around, but they can be offered by more obscure lenders, smaller lenders, building societies, etc. So a broker can really look at your finances and your child's finances and give you that independent guidance on what to do. And of course, another way to gift is by giving money to your loved ones. Um, let's first hear from two of our listeners, Wisdom and Carol DeCosta from Windsor, about what they did when they came into some inheritance money. When my father died and I received my inheritance, instead of paying off my mortgage, I thought the money would be better used by splitting it between my three children and enabling them to put it towards a decent deposit so that they could get onto the property market. And so far, two of them have managed to do that. The other one hasn't quite managed to complete that yet. So, yeah, it was just a way of just trying to give them a chance to get onto the market because otherwise I don't think it would ever happen. They would have to wait till I die. And I'd rather they could get going now whilst they're young enough to enjoy it and have their own families and not have to have the stress and strain of thinking that they're never going to get there. We haven't had a sort of a massive amount of savings. Everything we've got is sort of in the house, so to speak. So any money coming through, we thought, well, we don't actually need it. We don't need anything more. We don't need another car or another cruise or whatever. So um, it's much better for the children to have it. The options for the children other than that is to say, look, we're going to have to move away a long way away. And we are a close family, so we don't really want that to happen. And it's sort of what we're paying to make sure that kids can stay close to us because the prices, as you know, in the southeast are um, ridiculous. They're way beyond ridiculous, really. I knew completely in my heart that it was the right thing to do. And I didn't even think twice about it. I didn't even think of it as my money. It was money I'd never had. So I didn't even think about it. It was never there for my future, as it were. It was just money that I got due to the sad loss of my father. And I know that he would have been happy to see his grandchildren do well out of it. It's great to hear how this worked out for Wisdom and Carol. Jenny, if you decide to gift money to loved ones, can you talk us through any tax implications? 
Sure. As I was saying at the top, giving money away now in your lifetime, that doesn't just mean that you're able to see the people you love benefit from those gifts. It could also mean that a potential inheritance tax bill when you're gone could be much reduced or even avoided altogether. And I'm going to have to quickly recap on those inheritance tax rules because they are a little bit fiddly. But essentially, inheritance tax is charged on estates over a certain value. But if you've given money away, obviously, there's a chance that you're going to bring the total value of your estate, so that's your property, any other assets, savings, investments, and so on, a chance you could bring that below the threshold. And I really, really want to make this point loud and clear that inheritance tax is something a hell of a lot of people worry about, but very few people actually pay. So to put that into perspective, less than 4% of deaths resulted in an inheritance tax bill in the 2019-20 tax year. And we're talking, I think it's around 23,000 deaths. That is because of these thresholds. So if your estate is worth less than £325,000, there'll be nothing to pay to HMRC. If you leave your home to a child or a grandchild, you get an extra allowance on top of £175,000. So that takes, as an individual, that takes your total tax-free allowance to 500000 half a million pounds. But if you're a couple, you can double that. So that's potentially up to a million pounds that you can pass on to your family when you die without a penny having to be paid in inheritance tax. But if you do think there's a risk that your estate will exceed that, then it's well worth thinking about how you can bring the value of your estate down by giving away some of your wealth in your lifetime. The crucial point here is that there are limits to how much you can give away tax free. The main one is known as your annual exemption. So that's £3,000 per tax year per person that you can give away actually to any number of people as long as the total amount you give away in that tax year remains below £3,000. And there's a bit of a bonus here in that if you haven't used it in the previous year, you can backdate it. So in theory, a couple could give away £12,000 in a single tax year if they haven't gifted anything in the year before. So that's the main one to remember, £3,000 a year. But you can also make an unlimited number of smaller tax-free gifts worth up to £250 each, as long as it's not to anyone who has benefited from the main £3,000 gift allowance. And then another tax-free gift worth mentioning here is if your child is getting married, or starting a civil partnership, you can give them up to £5,000 tax-free as a wedding gift. And for grandchildren, the limit is £2,500. So those are the main gift allowances to be aware of. It doesn't mean that you can't give away money outside of those allowances. But what it does mean is that anything in excess of those allowances are treated as what's known as potentially exempt transfers. In other words, they might be exempt from inheritance tax, but there's a condition on it. And that condition is that you have to live for at least seven years after making them. If you do, then that's guaranteed that that money will not form part of your estate when you die and it won't be subject to inheritance tax. And of course, going back to the original point, this might all be moot anyway. If your estate comes under those key thresholds I outlined, then there won't be a bill to worry about at all. And so far, we've been talking about gifting to adults. But what if you want to share your wealth with children who are under 18? Here's David Denton, technical consultant at Quilter Chevier Investment Management, with the different options and how they're taxed. 
those monies received could be invested, for example, on their behalf in a junior ISA. And that junior ISA in its own right grows without the deduction of income tax or capital gains tax and can be encashed normally at the age of 18 for that beneficiary with no personal tax. And if you're really thinking in advance and in the long term, it's often thought that children can't take out pensions. But actually, children can have pensions and it's perfectly possible that a gift can be made on behalf so that a child can own a pension. And that can be really tax efficient because although that child probably doesn't pay any income tax, they can enjoy tax relief on a small pension contribution. Perfectly possible for 2,880 to be invested for a child into a pension for which tax relief is available, which means the gross amount invested, courtesy of the tax man, is actually £3,600, which is the maximum that anyone can have invested, such as the child who doesn't pay tax. So that gives that child a really good start in life, building up a pension that can be accessed probably when they get to retire at 67 or a few years beyond that. Now, something we haven't yet touched on is equity release. This is when you access your property's value for more cash in retirement, but it's an expensive lifetime commitment. Jenny, do you want to explain how it works? Yeah. So the way it most commonly works is that you take out a loan against your property, which is then repaid from the proceeds of its sale when you die or when you move into long term care, if that happens. This arrangement is what's known as a lifetime mortgage. And unlike with an ordinary mortgage, the ones we've been talking about with Steve, you don't have to make any repayments. But that can make these lifetime mortgages very expensive because you've got interest that is racking up right from the beginning. And though the interest rates that apply are actually higher to begin with anyway than on mainstream mortgages. And yeah, not making any repayments on that loan is just going to mean that you end up paying far more than you've borrowed thanks to compounding interest. It does come with a bit of a health warning in that in that respect. It's not a cheap way to borrow. But interestingly, the, the amount that's being borrowed through equity release at the moment is at record highs. Part of that is down to house price growth. Steve's talked about how strong the property market has been in recent years. And that can be a really good thing from an equity release point of view, because if house price growth remains strong throughout the period of your lifetime mortgage, you could still end up with a substantial amount of equity left in your property. But you've got to go into that knowing that the opposite scenario is also possible. You could be left with very little equity at the end of it, although there is a guarantee set by the Equity Release Council, the industry body that says that you'll never owe more than your home's value. So, yeah, house prices feed into it. No doubt the cost of living crisis is is playing a part and more people turning towards equity release, you know, as a way to free up money and ease increasingly strained finances. Just be careful, you know, the ads can make it sometimes look like a complete no brainer, you know, an easy way to fund a new kitchen or, you know, treat your loved ones, as we've been talking about. But opting to to unlock cash from your property like this is actually a really big decision. It can be super expensive. It's not one that's easy to revise further down the line. And yeah, it it just could, could cost you far more than you'd expected. So, you know, if you have other savings sitting around that could be better used, if we are talking about gifting money to your family, then that should be the first port of call. If we're talking about, you know, freeing up funds to last you in retirement because you're going to struggle potentially, then then that is where equity release might come into its own. But I think first and foremost, you know, explore all other options for borrowing. You know, if it's if it's a big purchase like a kitchen 
think about a personal loan or a credit card where the interest payments could be a lot less. It's a less big commitment because equity release is such a big commitment. You are required to seek financial advice before you go any further. So hopefully at that point, you'll be able to get a clear steer from the financial advisor about whether it is really appropriate or not. And finally then, can I get your thoughts on some of the other things you should consider before gifting? A big one that comes to my mind and and something you just mentioned, Jenny, is weighing up how much you might need for retirement. That's exactly it. I think it can be really too easy to underestimate how much you're going to need to live on when you stop working. And we, we talked about that in a recent pod, didn't we? Just about, you know, how how punchy some of those income targets can be, you know, we probably need more than than we really expect to. And of course, we're all living longer. So in some cases, you could be looking at several decades of retirement. And so it's really important to prepare for that as, as best you can. Because after all, there are all sorts of financial shocks that can upset even the best laid plans. You know, we've all seen that in, in the past few years, the impact of the pandemic and how that's affected people's retirement incomes. You know, if they're drawing money from a drawdown arrangement where they've got money invested and they're just, you know, taking money out as and when, you know, with the stock market going down, that's really messed with those plans. So, yeah, basically the, the main message is, is to make sure that giving financial help to others doesn't end up costing you in the long run. You're, you're really going to need to sit down and and make sure that it all adds up financially. If you are making gifts, if you do decide that you can afford to, it's not going to affect your standard of living and it's going to massively improve somebody else's, then it's just a good idea to document these. You don't actually need to declare them yourself, you know, the fact that you're making a gift to somebody else, because ultimately it's going to be the job of your executor. So the person who will administer your estate once you've died to work out what gifts you've made, to report them to HMRC and to determine whether or not there's an inheritance tax bill there. But of course, that job for your executor is going to be made much easier if you've left clear and complete records, you know, so the date a gift was made, who it was made to, the reason and so on. Good record keeping is always going to be helpful. Thanks so much to Steve and Jenny for coming on the show today and to you for listening to this week's episode of the Witch Money Podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to answer in the show or even dedicate an episode to, please let us know in the comments wherever you're listening to the show or drop us an email at podcast at witch.co.uk. Please do also subscribe to the show to make sure you catch us again next week. For more money news and advice, find us on social media at witchmoney and online at witch.co.uk forward slash money. And there's also our free money newsletter, which is delivered to your inbox every Monday. To sign up, visit witch.co.uk forward slash money newsletter. This episode of the Witch Money Podcast was produced by Ian Aikman and Grace Witherden with additional support from Rob Lilly and edited by Eric Breer. 